chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. For if you love those who love you, what benefits is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Our reading tonight is from 1 Samuel chapter 25 and can be found on page 247 of the Pew Bible. 1 Samuel 25, this is God's word. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Having heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed 
for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode in the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. 
And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David uh, sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Anahom of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galilee. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. Things have changed in Israel. We read in verse 1 that Samuel, the great prophet, is now dead. An event that has brought on national mourning in Israel, reminiscent of the deaths of Moses, of Jacob, and of Aaron. But there's one thing that hasn't changed at all. Saul is still technically king, and David is still on the run. Chapter 25 gives us a bit of a breathing space away from the David versus Saul storyline. That picks up again in chapter 26. But this chapter still focuses on David's ability to listen to wisdom. In chapter 25, we meet a couple of new characters. We meet Nabal, a rich fool, 
and his intelligent, long-suffering wife, Abigail. The whole story hinges on the wisdom of Abigail. So please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. It's quite a long chapter, I know, but we'll be moving through it quite quickly. So that's on page 247. Please do open your Bibles. After the mourning period for Samuel, we find in verse 1 that David returns to the wilderness, this time to a place called the Wilderness of Paran, which is quite famous in history, as is probably where all of the stops in the Exodus occurred. Unsurprisingly, David needs food and supplies. So in verses 5 to 8, we find that David sends 10 young men to this guy called Nabal. They come in peace and remind Nabal that David protected his shepherds, his flocks, while they were based in Carmel. Nabal wasn't some kind of pagan heretic. We're told that Nabal was a Calebite, and that means he was descended from Caleb, one of the good guys around the time of Joshua. He was one of God's covenant people. We also know from Numbers 13 that Caleb was of the tribe of Judah, the same tribe as David. David's not asking some random guy to help. He's asking a tribesman. But he's not asking the tribesmen to go to a lot of hassle, a lot of bother, to prepare a feast especially for David and his men. He's simply asking for whatever he has on hand, as we read in verse 8. It was even a feast day, not a religious feast day, but an excuse for a bit of a celebration with those who had worked for Caleb. So there was plenty of food. David's basically saying to Caleb, Caleb, we protected your sheep, we protected your shepherds. Can you include us, even a little, in the feast? There's nothing unreasonable about what David's asking. David is simply asking for help from someone who is in a position to help. For a normal person, the answer would be, certainly there's going to be excess food. Come, come, David, join the celebration. Thank you for helping me. What's Nabal's reaction? Disrespect. Verse 10 we read, David who? Folks, of course Nabal knew who David was. David, the guy who killed Goliath. David was quite famous. We find out later on that David was even married to the king's daughter. David was the king's son-in-law. The women of Israel had even written songs about David. David was kind of a big deal. Then there's the disrespect of his father. Who's the son of Jesse? Who's Jesse? Why should I do anything for his son? Then the ultimate insult. He accuses David of being a servant who has run away from his master. Nabal tries to justify himself by asking why he should give his man's food to God knows who. But Nabal knows full well who David is and who his men are. Just think, does an escaped servant 
send down ten men of a delegation to ask for food. What's David's reaction to this disrespect? He's absolutely furious. If you were here last week, we know that David is reasonable. But this just absolutely turns him into a tizzy. In verse 13, we read that David himself and 400 of his men armed themselves to go and pay this guy a visit. An absolute overreaction, maybe. What was David's big plan? What was his big picture? To leave a bloodbath like Saul did with the priests in chapter 23. To kill the innocent shepherds because their boss is an idiot. Think about how all this felt to the shepherds who David had protected. In verse 14, one of them at least seems to have his, uh, seems to know what's going on. They know what Nabal is like. We already know from verse 3 that he has a reputation for being harsh and badly behaved. This probably wasn't the first time something like this had happened. But the same folks knew that his wife Abigail had a bit of wit about her. The young man doesn't know the specifics that David and several hundred armed men are coming to pay a visit. But he knows from reputation it is not going to end well. So he tells Abigail what's happened. Verses 14 to 17. But notice that this guy doesn't give David a big, long introduction. Abigail already knew who he was. He was that famous. The servant says, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed, that's literally screamed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while they were with us. Now therefore, know this and, con and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless fellow that one cannot speak to him. Nabal is somebody who simply will not listen. Utter destruction is coming his way at the hand of David, the son of Jesse, because he did not repay kindness with kindness. David killed Goliath. Would you take your chances against a giant killer? Remember his reputation, the woman's song from 1 Samuel 18? The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Maybe Abigail was one of the women who sang that song. But David's reputation is as a fighter, and a good one. Would you go and slap Carol Frampton in the face? Yeah? No. Scott's nodding. Okay. David was that good that even Nabel's men didn't lose anything at all as long as David's men 
were with him. The young man even calls them a wall in verse 16. Nabal had paid good with evil. So this young man has enough cop on to see the inevitable. He knows there's no talking to Nabal, this worthless man, literally a son of the devil. Abigail, the beautiful, the intelligent Abigail, who you get the impression was the losing side in an arranged marriage. She doesn't say anything. Instead, she immediately springs into action. Verse 18, we read about Abigail taking enough food to feed David and his men. She puts them on donkeys, sends her servants out ahead of her, and all without telling Nabal. In verse 20, we find out just really how intelligent she was. She knew David would be coming secretly, secretively, under the cover of the mountain. So Abigail takes that route and meets David. In verses 21 and 22, we find out that the young man was absolutely right. David was coming to destroy them because Nabal had paid evil, uh, good for evil. David is bringing down curses on Nabal and his men. His anger is absolutely red hot, and he is planning to absolutely destroy them. Is he right? Is he wrong? He's wrong. We'll see that in a couple of minutes. But just look at Abigail's reaction in verse 23. She bows before David, just like David did before Saul in the last chapter, because she recognizes him as king. Hear her words in verse 24 as she pleads. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please listen to your servant. See the contrast between Nabal and David? Nabal won't listen, but David will. If only David's men came to Abigail instead of Nabal, she would have happily given them what they needed. Verse 25, she says, Pay no attention to Nabal. He's a fool. Nabal means fool, like the name Depp, as in Johnny Depp, means idiot in German. That's true. Big German market. Nabal is a fool because he knew enough about David. He knew enough not to pay back good with evil. He knew enough to expect destruction. He knew enough to expect his own doom was coming. And what did he do? Absolutely nothing. Like the fool in our call to worship, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Just like the fool says in his own heart, there is no God. That's what makes them a fool. It's obvious to anyone with eyes in their head that there is a God. That's what Paul says in Romans. Destruction is coming on the heads of those who reject Christ. 
They know enough to turn to God. But instead, as Paul says in Romans, they have exchanged the glory of God for lies and for images and even for one another. When we read this passage, we might think that Nabal saved her husband, or sorry, Abigail saved her husband Nabal. But that's not what the passage is getting at at all. Instead, David is the one who is saved by Abigail. Look at verse 26, Abigail's words. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. The Lord used Abigail to save David from being guilty of the murder of hundreds of innocent shepherds. If Abigail didn't step up, David would have effectively been no better than Saul in chapter 23, with the blood of priests on his hand. The Lord Yahweh, through Abigail, saved David from having blood on his hands. She has even saved David from saving with his own hand. Remember last week when we said uh, David listened to the voice of God speaking in Deuteronomy? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Abigail has stopped David ignoring that truth here. The Lord is reminding David through Abigail that if you're not to do it in the case of Saul, well, you're not to do it in the case of this idiot either. No matter how furious David is, the Lord will repay because vengeance is his. Saul's days are numbered and so are Nabal's. Abigail knows this. That's why she says, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to, evil to my Lord, David, be as Nabal, the object of God's wrath. In other words, let David's enemies be just like Nabal, the objects of a divine wrath that is coming down on them, not from the hand of David, but from the hand of the Lord. Listen to the amazing words of Abigail in verses 29 to 31. She asks forgiveness for not making sure the men were fed. Why? Because she knows ultimately that David will be king. These are the king's men. She knows that Yahweh, the Lord, will build David's house. Why? Because David is fighting the Lord's battles, not his own. It's like he's saying, don't waste your time on the Baal. Don't let that fool give you a reason to sin. Don't even let Saul give you a reason to sin. Don't let your enemies win a double victory over you so that you get so furious that you sin in anger. It's like David's own words in Psalm 4, be angry and don't sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. 
Don't let your anger lead you into sin. Instead, ponder, think, think, think before you act. It's the same idea behind Paul's words in Romans and in 1 Thessalonians. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Why? So we don't end up very nearly like David, with blood on our hands because our enemies have got one over on us. I might be wrong, but I doubt any of us are going to lead a 400-strong army against someone who's wronged us. But I know with myself, and there's nothing unique about me, that it is so easy to respond to insults or to someone who slighted you, so easy to respond with a bigger insult, with a more witty put-down, or anything else just to make them feel like an idiot. Even though James repeatedly warns us to watch our tongues because they're on fire with hell. That's why I think Peter extends Paul's words in 1 Peter 3. He says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Peter especially knew how easy it was to speak evil as well as to do evil. Don't speak bad of your neighbor just because they spoke bad of you. Don't fight gossip with gossip. Don't fight murder with murder. Don't fight adultery with adultery. In other words, don't let the gossiper turn you into a gossip. Don't let an adulterer turn you into an adulterer. Instead, listen to Jesus' words that Derda read earlier. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That reading from Luke is not a call to pacifism, and it's certainly not a call to be a doormat. It is a manifesto of the freedom that we have in Christ. The one who curses us doesn't have to turn us into a curser. The one who strikes us on one cheek doesn't have to turn us to violence. The thief doesn't have to turn us to a thief. They might have the power to hurt us or to steal from us. But they don't have the power to make us live like them. They don't have the power to turn us into one of them. Because we are free. They are still slaves of sin, serving the biggest loser of all time, Satan. Don't let being hated overpower you and turn you away from living that life of love that we've been hearing so much about in First John in the mornings. Don't become like one of them, because you are not one of them. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Does that mean, though, that we don't seek justice? Absolutely not. The scripture is crystal clear that we should seek, pursue, and fight for justice. It is absolutely biblical to believe in just war. It is absolutely biblical to defend yourself and your family. It is absolutely abhorrent in God's sight 
that murderers walk away free while victims live in fear. It is not a sin to seek justice. And for those folks who have lost friends and family under the guise of terror, know this, that there is a judge from whom murderers and rapists, thieves and gossipers cannot escape. The question, folks, is not if sin will be punished. The question is when sin is punished. If your faith is in Christ, your sin has already been punished on the cross. It's finished. If your faith is not in Christ, your sin will be punished in hell. That is why you need to repent and turn to Christ. So if you haven't, wake up and get with the program. All sin is punished by a just God, justly. That justice is what we call a communicable attribute of God. It's something that we share with God. We want justice. But the scenarios that are included here, that's not what we're talking about. Seeking justice does not mean that we end up like the world. Because justice is not revenge. And that's the difference in 1 Samuel 25. David wanted revenge. When someone slights us, do we want justice or revenge? That's what the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth law was about. Equity. Not, well, this guy refused to give me a bit of bread and meat. I know I'm going to send down a 400-man army to destroy him and every man in his house. That's revenge, that's blood guilt. And that is what the Lord, through Abigail, saved David from. Read verses 29 to 31. The Lord Yahweh is protecting you, David. He will wipe out your enemies. When you are finally king, sitting in your palace... You're not going to look back with tears, remembering the time that you slaughtered all these innocent uh, shepherds because their idiot boss wouldn't give you some bread. And when you do, when you're in your palace, remember your servant, Abigail. We know by the end of this chapter that David remembered Abigail a lot sooner than when he was sitting in the throne. But in verse 32, we see David's wisdom again. He listens. It takes wisdom to listen to wisdom. It takes wisdom to listen to wisdom. Verses 33 to 35, we read David's response to Abigail. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. David takes the food that she brought, sends her back in peace, because he listened to her. He obeyed her voice. The wrath has been turned to peace. But what about Nabal? Verses 36 to 41 tell us his fate. Abigail returns. 
What's Nabal doing? Feasting like a king and drunk out of his mind. What a fool. He didn't even miss the food and wine that uh, Abigail brought to David. So Abigail waits until the next morning to tell him what happened. I like her style. She waits until the hangover and indigestion hit. Timing is everything. He takes a heart attack, goes into a coma, and ten days later we read in verse 38 that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Nabal wasn't saved at all by David, uh, by Abigail. Abigail didn't have to tell him anything. He was none the wiser. But just like the Lord used Abigail to save David, he uses Abigail to bring judgment and an end to Nabal. When David hears about this in verse 39, he rejoices that it's the Lord who has put to death his enemies. All the while, David's own hand has been kept from evil. David keeps, uh, takes Abigail as a queen for his kingdom. And who wouldn't want this kind of woman as a queen in her kingdom? And gentlemen, we thank God for godly women like Abigail. The chapter closes with a couple of verses noting David's other wives. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to start a second sermon, but just a couple of uh, things to note. First, polygamy is condoned nowhere in the Bible. So I think that the author of 1 Samuel is really just reminding his readers that David is not perfect. Polygamy was a pagan influence that never really goes well in Scripture. Think about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And think about uh, in 1 Samuel, uh, El uh, sorry, Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Hananiah. It's also a glimpse into the lust of sexual sin that David would commit adultery with, with Bathsheba, which involved, ironically, David taking the life of an innocent man. It's tragic, isn't it? David had Abigail, but he still wanted Bathsheba. It's not a hagiography. It's not a book written to make David look good. This is warts and all stuff. In the final verse, we learn Saul is back on the scene. We're told that he had taken David's wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, and given her to another man to break any possible claim to the throne. As we close tonight, we thank God for the faithful witness of his people. We thank God for the faithful witness of women like Abigail, who know God's word, who love God, and women without whom churches like Eden Grove would not be able to function. But we thank God especially for the king to whom Abigail points us to, the one who intercedes for us, the one who turns away the wrath of God justly for our sin, our Lord Jesus Christ, the voice of wisdom to whom we must listen. We're going to close our praise tonight in a couple of moments. The reason we're singing this song in particular is that the words in one of the verses, Lord, renew my mind, 
as your will unfolds in my life, living every day by the power of your love. It's a prayer that each one of us will think God's thoughts after him, and that we will live each day not in vengeance, not in wrath, not in hatred, not breaking our backs trying to be better, but instead live each day by the power of his love. Please stand as we sing.